Hey there, it's your boy Timmy C. And this is another episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts. Today I chat to the researcher, neuroscientist and psychologist Paul J. Zach. And we chat about story and how narratives work and what is going on in the brain when you experience a story. Now, before I go any further, I think you're going to love what you hear on this episode. I reached out to Paul um, with no expectation that he would be interested in being on the show because he is a internationally renowned researcher, a giant in his field. It's okay for me to say that. I'm sure he wouldn't characterise himself in those terms, but it just happens to be true. Um, And I'll put a link actually to his um, TED talk, which has had over a million views, because it's absolutely fascinating. On the function of oxytocin, this, what he calls the moral molecule, and how it affects our reaction to other human beings, how it makes us more likely to give money to charity if we uh, if something stimulates oxytocin how it makes us bond with people all these things and how that is released um when we're engaged in a powerful story so and his research has you know it's got the attention of loads of different organizations because you know quite a lot of what he's found is quite powerful um but I'm a little bit heartbroken because we recorded this and he, he I got in touch with him and he actually was really enthusiastic. He said, yeah, I'd love to talk. I don't get to talk to writers. Uh, I'd really love to. And I was like, great. And we set it up. He was just so sort of helpful and accommodating. And we were chatting across the Atlantic. So finding a time when we're both, when I'm not looking after my daughter and that he's free. He's, he got up early to chat and all of this. And and um, and then when I went was put, it was only when I was putting the episode together that I realised that the last ten minutes of his audio was missing, and the I and I normally record the Skype call as well, and for some reason that hadn't worked, so I lo- I, I I'd lost it, and I, I I've spent some time trying to find it, and I just couldn't recover it, and um, it's not possible to re-record. And I do, I do feel pretty sad, like because you'll hear like what we talk about in the first sort of thirty-five minutes is so fascinating, and sometimes just because it confirms in scientific and uh, neuroscientific terms, like what is going on when you engage with a story, and makes those things concrete and articulates them in a way that affirms something that you've known intuitively as a writer for a while and as an enthusiastic end user of stories. But there's also just some stuff that I just think is so... is actually more profound than it it seems at first when you sort of think through the the implications of of what he's saying about what story the social function of stories and what what we're doing when we react to these things. And this is a guy who's, you know gone around drawing blood samples from people at a wedding and we'll get into that but it's really it's really interesting and this is what I've always wanted to do with this podcast is episodes like this and when I talk to 
James W. Pennebaker, the social psychologist, about expressive writing and pronoun use and function words when I talked to Dr. Tim Pitchell about procrastination, which is one of the most popular episodes I've ever recorded. Because the writing community talk about procrastination all the time, but it seems like it never occurred to anyone to actually approach some procrastination experts, people who've actually studied it, who've done um, MRI scans, and said, what's going on in the brain? Like, what is the best research we have available? Rather than just asking our colleagues, and I, I want to reach out, I want to do stuff that shows if writing shows have never done before. I think the pedagogy and the discussions we have around writing are still in their infancy. And it's not like I'm a genius. I just, in 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 some ways, I'm the opposite, right? I'm so dumb, I don't know what I'm allowed, not allowed to do. And so I, I ask the stupid questions. And it turns out there are people who've got a better answer than us. And I think as writers in the writing community, in the arts community, it's important that we feel that we're humble enough to to not think we have all the answers and to reach out across the floor and ask people in other disciplines and invite them to collaborate with us and so that's what's going on here but we get to a point you'll hear because I start talking I start rambling about goblins and that was when the um that's when the chat ended uh well that's when the recording ended so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you what I've got and then I'll come in at the end and I just because I've still got the recordings of my questions and I can remember what he said I just want to give you sort of his last answer that we missed off because although it's a small proportion of the actual runtime of the entire interview it was the point where I was like okay so could you round all this wrap all this up like if you were going to speak to a class of if you were put in front of a class of creative writers what would be your advice to them and he gave this like barnstorming, inspirational, like supported by research, great succession of insights, and I've lost them forever. And um, that breaks my heart for you because I just was listening to it and I was, ah, uh, it's just, it's so, these things happen, right? And I'm sorry, and I feel embarrassed. I feel embarrassed because. I think this year has been gone so good for the podcast and I was just starting to feel like, oh, maybe I am sort of allowed to do this and maybe I am a proper podcaster. And then I go and like get one of my most prestigious interviews ever and I and I cock it up. So I'm really sorry to Paul as well because he was brilliant. But I'll put links to his stuff because I hope that hearing this is going to get you so interested that you're going to want to go and find out more. You can follow him on Twitter. You can see his TED talk. You can buy his book. He's done several, I'd recommend like a good starting point, The Moral Molecule, really, really interesting, really, really interesting stuff. And um, you, there's stuff out there that you can go and read up on, but hopefully this will be a taster for you. Now, just before I start the the uh, our, our chat, I just want to say I've put up, uh, for, t for 2019, I'm starting a, a uh, what I'm calling the weekly writing workout which is basically, if you've done my Couch to 80K writing bootcamp, you'll have some idea of the kind of thing. But once a week, I'm going to be just giving out a free, focused, 10-minute writing exercise. Not just, not just a prompt, so it won't just be like, a man walks into a shop, 
wearing a large hat. Why? It's not going to be. It's not going to be like that. It'd be, it's more focused. They're, they're exercises rather than sort of single word prompts. Um, but the idea being that if you are like me and you find it difficult to stick to your writing resolutions, if like me you can use like the occasional bit of encouragement or something focused, you know, like something in your intray that says, "Hey, do this," and like takes away the fear of the blank page if you could just do with something that's going to be like a difference maker every week a little boost i've you know from the thousands of people who've done the couch 20k writing bootcamp now i've got a i've got an idea from because so many people have engaged with me about what kind of exercises work for building confidence and and by the way professional authors several books in still need to build confidence sometimes they're the ones whose confidence is 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 the worst right so the and, and when i say these build confidence they're not just kind of i'm not trying to advocate a kind of like pollyanna-ish rose-tinted spectacles view of the world i think sometimes people can be a bit sneery about when you say an exercise is confidence building it's going to build confidence by training you in the skills you need to write well and by helping you develop your creativity which is a muscle and as I, i'm sure Paul Zach would uh, agree with you know like what fires together wires together by practicing these creative kind of like they're like cone drills in football right you're practicing being creative in a quick low stakes environment and that is going to make your brain better at making odd connections and it's going to remind you that writing is going to be fun and it's going to be put you in this mindset of opportunity and problem solving rather than problem avoidance so are, there's a link anyway it's, it's just by email drop into your inbox once a week if you sign up um, and it's completely free uh, that's it really so i'll put a link to it in the show notes of this show and i'll make sure there's one on my website but if you just search for tim clare weekly writing workout then you'll find it and you can sign up and that's it really i hope i hope people enjoy it i've had quite a few signups already people seem pretty enthusiastic um it's just and it's something that's easy for me to do and i quite enjoy it you know it's 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 very very uh low effort for me i've got loads of writing exercises and it's really useful for to me by the way if you start doing it you want to drop me a a message via my website via the contact me link on the right hand side of my website timclairpod.co.uk then please do i'd love to hear how you get on with the different exercises all of that is just data for me that allows me to become a better creative writing teacher so really useful to me and kind of thrilling when i hear from people and they're enjoying it and it sparks some stuff off for them and and at the very least it will mean that all i'm asking from you is 10 minutes a week which i'm sure you can find to make sure that once a week you do a bit of creativity and you keep that fire alive in you. I think that is something positive I can give you for 2019. So there you go. Okay, so I hope you enjoy this episode and this is me chatting to Paul Jazak. Okay. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and I am joined today by Dr. Paul J. Zach, how are you? Hi, Tim. Great to be on with you. Uh, it's wonderful 
to have you. Now, of course, I'm always super, super excited and enthusiastic to have the guests we have on, but I'm particularly thrilled today because I feel like we're going into territory that is... And we're reaching across the big divide between the sciences and the arts and asking you to hand back some of your fantastic knowledge um, to us weird artists over here. I love the weird artist. <laughs> that, I'm so glad. So the first thing I wanted to uh, ask, um, to just give us a kind of context before we go into the research and the sciences, I'd really like to ask you how you... If this is not, you know, too silly a question, like, how did you get into this? Like, where did this all start for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there's a story behind it. Um, so as you and some of the listeners may know, uh, my lab was the first to develop a protocol to measure the brain's acute production of this neurochemical oxytocin in human beings. And we were the first to show that oxytocin... Uh, is released when someone uh, trusts us, when someone shows us the kindness, and it motivates us to work on other people's behalf. And that was a really big mystery in the world, uh, in biology and economics. You know, why do we why do we help strangers when there's very little benefit for us? And the short answer is we have a social brain, duh. But you know what does that mean? Well, we have this particularly high affinity for uh, producing and, and absorbing this chemical oxytocin that instantiates us in social groups, which is very valuable. Um, so we, we studied this by having people interact in, in a scripted way in, in the laboratory. Um, anyway, so we, we did a lot of work on this and, and got, you know, moderately famous for this work. And uh, so I'm flying around giving talks everywhere. And I was coming back from um, about five days in Washington, D.C., and I love the airplane for 500 reasons, but also because you're in this bubble where you can just work for five hours. Mm. So I'm typing away in my laptop, but we had this long stretch of turbulence where I just couldn't, couldn't type. It was just, you know, you couldn't concentrate. I was like, okay, well, the sky gods have said I should watch the movie. And because I'm busy and I have kids and you don't watch a lot of movies. And so the Clint Eastwood movie, Million Dollar Baby, was coming on. Thought, oh, Clint Eastwood won an Academy Award, got to be a great movie. Uh, you know, it's a guy movie, right? It's Clint Eastwood. It's going to be a, wonderful. So I watched this movie, and literally the next thing I I uh, remember is the gentleman next to me is poking me in the shoulder, and he said, "Sir, is there something wrong with you? Do you need some help?" And at the end of this movie, this is a father daughter story, and I have two daughters. And then the movie, it's not like I was crying. It's like every orifice in my face was expelling liquids. You know, it was just beyond embarrassing. I mean, I just lost it. I completely lost it. And so I go back to my lab, and the great thing about having a lab is you can test your own crap that you're involved in. <laughs> so I told my, my lab members what happened to me, and one of the guys who works with me is a psychologist. said, oh, yeah, psychologists do this all the time. They used you know, movies or music to change people's moods. And I'm like, well, I'm, I wonder why that happens. And the, and the interesting thing to him was, like, you know, I was cognitively intact. Maybe I was a little tired. Maybe I was missing my kids. But... You know, I know it's a movie. I know where I am. I'm, I'm not brain damaged. I didn't take drugs. And yet I still couldn't suppress that emotional response to such a powerful movie. The question is why? What's, what's driving that? So we began to study uh, short form storytelling, uh, uh, video clips. And uh, in, in neuroscience, uh, the, the big problem is what we call signal extraction. Most of what you and your listeners' brains are doing now 
are keeping you upright, breathing, and conscious. And a little bit's responding to my voice, and then you, t- you, 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 know, you uh, task switch and you hear the truck going by, or you hear a dog bark, whatever it is. And so um, to, to find the sort of true signal that's responding to a story from the background noise requires a, a, a lot of uh, you know, multiple studies, number one, but also we always put in sort of a behavioral response so that we can relate the brain activity that we think is responding to that story to a specific behavior. So we began studying public service announcements about like childhood cancer and uh, you know people lost their homes in fires and whatever. And then we saw like who actually would donate to these, uh, you know, these causes, even though the, the little short stories we had never asked people to donate. We said, look, childhood cancer affects, you know, one out of a hundred kids in the world. Here's a little kid with cancer who's dying and blah, blah, blah. And by the way, would you like to donate some of the 40 bucks you earned for letting a stick a needle in your arm twice uh, to St. Jude Children's Hospital? And, and so we started looking at people who responded to stories and people who didn't respond to stories just because we had to solve that signal extraction problem. And, and from this, this is a very long answer, we identified neurologic signals in the brain that I call immersion in a, in a story or an experience uh, in which you are so uh, gripped neurologically by this um, experience that you're motivated to take an action. So we can talk more about what, what immersion is, but what great stories do is immerse us in their material so that we are neurologically transported, as I was, into that movie. So at the end of Million Dollar Baby, as you know, there's an amazingly powerful, heroic, and sad act that goes on in this father-daughter tale. And I was embodying the emotions that the Clint Eastwood character was displaying on screen. So that's a really interesting thing that probably only humans do, that we can transport ourselves into these fictional worlds. And so, yeah, so that's the origin story. And uh, 15 years later and... I don't know, a hundred studies at least, maybe maybe more than that now. So we, we spend a lot of time studying stories. So um, thank you for asking that wonderful question. I, that's, I'm already um, very quietly having my mind blown here listening to you talk about these things. There's a wonderful thing that I read that you put down. I think you were talking about uh, how groups socialize, but saying that um, it's so, in, and it, it's what came to my mind when you were giving that answer, that some of these things are so instinctual and so endemic to being human that they're actually very difficult to study or think about because the idea of someone reacting or crying at a movie is such a common or communal or or recognised experience that actually it takes a certain type of mind to stop and go, what's going on here and ask why and I thought that was something particularly striking about what you're saying um but just before we go any further the one thing I want to sort of make sure just so I'm getting this right um I've heard you know (laughs) reading your articles I you know had heard you refer to yourself variously as a mad scientist uh, economic vampire doctor love um what is your official uh title and field of research because you've talked about you know psychology and neuroscience and sociology you want to put me in a box tim why would you want to do that <laughs> um i mean I, I run a behavioral science uh, lab um at claremont Graduate university and um last year we started a company called immersion neuroscience that provides software to uh experienced creators and storytellers to allow them to quantify uh how good experiences are uh, second by second so um 
I, I would say I'm a tool guy. I, I like to create tools to solve problems. And I think the storytelling uh, aspect of that is part of a bigger problem, which is we really like to have extraordinary experiences, right? I, I don't want to marry just a so-so lady. I don't want to uh, go to a, a bad movie. Um, you know, I, I don't want to watch a bad commercial uh, or read a bad novel. So at this stage of of our evolution, why are we still, you know, I live outside LA. So half the movies that come out are just unwatchable in my view. I mean, you know, you see the movie trailer and you go, uh, you know, so this studio dropped $50 million on this dog. Like I can just tell from the, from the commercial on TV <laughs> that this ain't going to be any good. Uh, so, you know, how do we not know? And I think, uh, you know, because I'm so interested in story and, and more generally in, in helping people have extraordinary experiences from, from podcast to education to, you know, lots of applications, um, I think we need a measurement technology. And what we've done, uh, you know, to date is ask people things like liking, you know, did, did, did you like this story? Did, how do you, what do you think of this movie? Like we, you know, we test movies and ask, give people three by five cards and pencils and mm-hmm. ask them, did you like the ending? Uh, so we, uh, one of the movie studios we've worked with uh, uh, talked about uh, this uh movie from uh, seven, eight years ago called Marley and Me about a dog that sort of saves the family. The family saves the dog, but then the dog saves the family. At the end of Marley and Me, it's based on a book, the dog dies. And it's really important that the dog dies. There, there's this sense of, 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 a, of closure in the dog dying. And, and yet when they tested that movie, everyone, almost everyone said, oh, you can't let the dog die at the end. That's terrible. That's, you know, <laughs> well, they don't, again, they don't understand storytelling. They don't understand that that, that poignancy is part of uh, the importance of that story, which is everything is temporal. And if you don't take into account that we have a very short time on the planet and that you've got to find love where you can get it, uh, you know, you, you miss much of the point of that story. So um, anyway, uh, we, we, we have tested, you know, we have always ask people, do you like this or do you think this advertisement is persuasive or, you know, um, eh, our brain, our brain just doesn't reveal that, uh, you know, unconscious emotional experience with very much fidelity or with much fidelity at all. And certainly can't do it second by second. So, um, so yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a good tool guy. How about that? Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, there's so much in what you're talking about there that is, oh my goodness, it's at, it's it's genuinely i don't want to you know i don't don't want to be too sycophantic but i i feel like i'm having and reading your work i feel like i've had so many aha moments that 20 years of studying literary theory have uh, you know hasn't um and so i feel there's great revelations in here and i i just want to you've talked to you sort of touched on uh, oxytocin and how people are reacting to uh, Marley and me, and, and and how that's different to maybe what we would report that we're feeling, or what we report we want from a story, and how our minds and bodies react. So I just want to ask a bit: what is going on in our brains and in our bodies when somebody really engages with the story? That's a great question. So I'll try to answer that simply. Um, so the so the first question I I sort of foreshadow, which is what do we mean by really engaging a story? And so for us, uh, for that that means that uh, that story was so powerful it motivated some kind of objectively observable behavior. So that could be a donation to a charity, 
Um, it, it might be crying, but that's, uh, you know, highly variable across individuals. Um, but, you know, it, it could be social sharing or it could be purchasing a product you saw advertised. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my scientist hat on and I'm going to couch that answer and, and say we, um, we measure the, the quality of an experience by the reactions you have. And so to get, you know, an action after a story or an experience, two things need to happen in the brain. Uh, the first thing is you've got to pay attention to that story. And we all live now in the ADD generation. We know that attention uh, is, is um, you know, difficult to uh, attract and sustain and metabolically it's costly. So you never get attention for free. You have to, you know, do something to get that attention. So in storytelling, we often do that with um, uh, uh, creating a mystery or creating uh, what's called a Hollywood hot open. So something, something hot is happening and I, I really want to see what's, you know, what's going on here. Something out of my expectation is, is occurring. So once you've got my attention, then we need a second component in the brain to uh, demonstrate immersion in that story. And that second component, as you said, is, is the brain's release of oxytocin. And that gives us emotional resonance with the characters uh, in the story. And so um, all storytelling, uh, you know, with m maybe very few exceptions, is built around um, social themes, right? There's some kind of social conflict, e even, you know, movies like WALL-E, I mean, about robots, you know, they're, they're anthropomorphized robots. So um, they're all about, about um, uh, human crises and conflict. And that, that social component causes the brain to release oxytocin and increases our, our, uh, the relevance of this emotionally to us. So one way to think about this is the first thing you have to do is get me to, to pay attention. And once you pay attention, you have to make me care about what's happening. If both those things happen, you can sustain my attention and you make me care about the story. Now my brain begins to tag that information as important. And that's why we can recall the first line of a great novel or the, the you know, great soliloquies from movies or from Shakespeare you know, decades later, because our brain has said, these things are very important. Just like anything that's highly emotional to you, uh, 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 something traumatic like 9-11 or uh, the birth of your child or your wedding or the first boy or girl you fell in love with, you know, those are so important to us uh, in our lives that our brains put a lot of emotional tags on that and we can recall them, uh, you know, years or decades later. So, so it's attention and emotion. And this emotion really means emotional resonance. I've, I've got to begin to uh, begin to share the emotions of that character. And again, that's probably uniquely human. I, I mean, I guess my, I guess my next question, and, and I, I'm not sure if this is kind of like out of your purview, but is there a why do our brains like those things? Why are we attaching to? Like you say, and there's not a person, there's not a, I think the word you used was cognitively intact. If you're, most people are watching a movie and understand that some people have gone onto a sound stage and somebody's written this and they've seen those, a lot of those actors in different roles. So there's no, there's no conscious blurring between these people and reality. And yet the way you're talking, it seems like we can have... Uh, experiences that feel as significant as actual memories. What's going on? Yeah, it's a real interesting uh, question. 
So it looks like uh, there's sort of two, two parts to that question. One is, you know, why do our brains respond to these fictional stories as if they were happening to us in real life? And uh, the short answer is neurologically, we are so um, uh, hyper aware of social information that we are uh, very, very sensitive to those that information around us. So um, technically, that means in particular that we have many more receptors uh, in uh, for oxytocin in areas of the brain that essentially uh, reward us, <clears throat> excuse me, for paying attention to social information. And um, stories always have social information. I think that's a fair statement. And so we're just hyper aware of that, right? Just just like um, when you're walking down the street and you see someone who's you know schizophrenic and talking to themselves, you're aware. You've got to be aware that that person you know probably should be watched just in case they're dangerous. Or you walk by and see the most gorgeous, you know, guy or girl or whatever, you know, coming by. Like, even if you're married, you know, that your brain says you ought to folk, you ought to pay attention to people who are really beautiful because they have great genes and they, they could be great, you know, romantic partners, uh, you know. And so even if, again, if you've been married a long time, your brain forces you to look at that. It's very valuable information. And so the second part of that story is that, you know, why would that brain system exist in humans and, and probably uniquely in humans? And what I think the social brain gave us is the ability to copy and learn from other people. So movies are, um, uh, or stories are putting us in fictional situations that might be valuable to us. Those lessons from those fictional situations might be valuable for us. So in other words, I can learn from that story something about what I might do should I ever be in that situation. So in our uh, 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 short uh, PSAs that we've studied children with, uh, with, with terminal brain cancer, you know, God forbid your child should ever have uh, a terminal disease, but if so, now I'm learning about what these parents did, how they uh, both uh, continued to, to show their children full love, but at the same time knowing that that child had, you know, months or weeks to live. Like that, that's a crisis that few of us will face, but if you were to face that, it'd be great to have a guide. Um, so, um, you know, much of the learning we do, like, we, uh, you know, I'm an educator, uh, you know, we still are in classrooms. We're still walking people through information as opposed to saying, you know, here's the book, just read it. Because somehow having that human being explain it to you adds this level of knowledge that taps into our, our social nature. So I think an example of this, uh, Tim, is is um, uh, kind of slasher horror movies, right? So those are almost uh, always seen by teenagers. And that makes sense to me evolutionarily, right? So if you're going to be out on your own soon, uh, uh, you know, there are bad things in the world. And if you're out in the forest in a cabin with your stupid teenage friends and you hear noises outside the cabin, what have we learned from every slasher movie in the world? Don't go outside. That could be a killer out there. Stay inside, you know, uh, you know, protect yourself, uh, you know, huddle together in the basement. But the last thing you do is send one dude outside. He's going to get killed for sure. So that's a little life lesson that should you ever need it, um, that movie is teaching you. <laughs> That's really, really, oh, that's really true. It's so, it, it, it's drilling people in some sort of basic, uh, I, I guess, like hypervigilance if you're ever in a cabin in the woods. I think when you're talking about those um, narratives, you talked about the narratives with children with terminal illnesses. I was, you know, listening to some of the talks you've given on those things and my daughter's two and two months so it was very real to me and 
I did find, like, exactly as you said, that my interactions with her over the last few days have been... I think she's she's pulled on my beard a couple of times because I've just been kind of, like, holding her going, wow, you know, like, it, it, you're so amazing. And she's been like, come on, I want to go running. And I'm just like, I'm just trying to appreciate you. And she kind of, like, gives me a little tweak in the <laughs> nose. Um, but it's... I've been very aware how... Um, listening to those stories has profoundly... Not, not that I'm ignoring my daughter for the rest of the, the time until that happened, and I thought, oh, I better, well, better pay attention to her, but it's profoundly affected my interactions with her. Yeah, and yet it also, um, you know, depreciates over time. So I think this is great for the, for the storytellers who are listening, we want more of those stories. We want to um, continue to have these highly immersive experiences. Even if our, our, our children are grown and out of the house, uh, we still are, are highly attracted to those kinds of stories. Um, so that's an interesting question. Or, or me, you know, I like, um, you know, I like action movies and, you know, war movies and historical movies and things blowing up. Um, why? Why is that? Well, I don't know. I'm kind of an action guy. I'm a big guy. I like going out in the, in the country and, you know, I don't know, just having adventures and jumping out of airplanes and whatever. So, so that kind of plays to my personality. And yet you think, gosh, I'm 56 years old. Haven't I seen enough of those movies? Um, why do I need that more? So I think we're, we're, as social creatures, insatiable in our desire for great stories. So uh, for this, for this story creators, um, you know, we need you. We need you to continue to tell these great stories. And uh, and we want to be immersed. Our brains value it. And that's why we continue to buy tickets to movies and, and buy books. And um, so that's that's good news. And I think what you said, Tim, is really on target. It does change us, at least temporarily, changes the way, you know, we uh, interact in our, in our real lives, uh, whether it's spending more time with our loved ones or, uh, you know, working out after you watch a Rocky movie or... Um, or maybe being even more sensitive to uh, people's plights. You know, I think uh, literature is a great way to build empathy. Uh, psychologist Steven Pinker has written about this extensively. You know, we, we begin to experience the world through other people's eyes and through that become, I think, much more tolerant and empathic uh, towards people who we don't know directly, but we can understand their suffering through a great story as opposed to, say, you know, statistics or something, which, which are not very compelling. Now... Paul, I just want to pick up on something that you mentioned with the with the dead dog, with Marley dying at the end of the movie, and something that I've noticed in uh, that you've talked about with behavioural change at the end of experiencing a narrative, and and, the, uh, and it's a question I want to ask: is does a story have more power if it's a tragedy or it ends with some feeling of? incompleteness or injustice um, than a story that ends with an upper ending, that ends with uh, an ending where the audience go, oh, that was resolved and I feel happy and all the characters got what they wanted. It, have you found a difference between the type of story that elicits behavioural behavioral trench? Do we have to see the dog die in order to complete it in our own lives? Gosh, that's a good question. So we did worry about this. Our original stories we studied were all very, you know, highly emotional. I mean, we, you always want to start 
with something that you think is going to work in an experiment. Um, but we've seen, you know, s- stories as short as 15 seconds and, and now as short as six seconds can be highly immersive. Wow. Um, they can be funny. Um, uh, so we, we've done studies, as you know, that we've actually infused synthetic oxytocin into people's brains and they are much more powerfully affected by stories and the characters. They'll donate more money. They, you know, so um, that emotional resonance is really important, but it doesn't have to be happy. I mean, it doesn't have to be sad or happy. It, it, um, I, I think it, it's structure. And, and this is, uh, I, I've written my second book recently, and I'm working on a third. So anyone who, who writes knows that, the, or at least in my view, the, the key is structure. Yes, the story needs to be there, but it's how you structure it, which is, you know, differentiates great from just so-so or bad. Um, and I think that story structure of rising tension, a conflict resolution, the sort of classic narrative arc, um, that is, you know, almost optimally designed to create an immersive experience. So if you can tap into that structure, uh, I, I think it's great. So we had talked about, you know, short form versus long term story, storytelling. So maybe I'll just jump on that real quickly. Yes, please. So, so that narrative arc structure, uh, uh, that sort of single narrative arc, works great for for short term terms, short form storytelling. And short form may be, you know, a short story might be a, um, a short video. So what is, <coughs> excuse me, what does short mean? Um, I think it probably means, you know, just, just a single narrative arc, maybe the five to 10 minute range. Beyond that, once you get to, you know, sort of US, uh, you know, half an hour TV, which is 22 minutes, you generally see two to three storylines. Uh, you know, novels and movies will generally have three to four storylines, sometimes five. And I think the reason for that is that, uh, as I said in the beginning, um, attention and emotional resonance are both metabolically costly. So we we physically can measure um, activity in the brain's um, prefrontal cortex that tells us that you're working really hard to to stay immersed in the story. We see increase in heart rate. We see sweating in the palms. So all these are measures of of the metabolic uh, cost of being immersed in a story. And so for longer tor- form stories, so you can do that for five or 10 minutes, but for longer form stories, um, what we do is we modulate the level of tension, right? So we have storyline one and that, and that builds tension uh, for, for some, you know, three, four, five minutes, that tension kind of builds. And then what happens? We go to storyline two, which begins with lower tension because now it's a different storyline. It's a new storyline. And so then we use that storyline, we build some tension, and then we may jump back to storyline one or begin a storyline three and wherever we start, we actually start generally with less tension. So I think uh, by weaving in multiple storylines, uh, storytellers have uh, intuitively understood that you can't exhaust your uh, viewer or your reader. Um, he or she needs a, a bit of a cognitive break. We even for long term storytelling, we build in, um, you know, a little jester scene, you know, some comic relief, uh, so that you 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 can take a, a neurologic break. I can exhale. Okay. You know, things are getting tense here, but there's this weird character. So, um, you know, he or she's going to make me laugh and now I can, um, you know, pick up some energy. So when, when we look at these, these, uh, this, this neurologic data, if we look at the time series as data over uh, the course of a story, these data look like a sine wave. So they, they have peaks and valleys. And to, to get a really deep immersive peak, you almost always have to have a valley before that. It's hard to go peak, 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 peak. It, it, it's just people get exhausted. And so uh, what's nice is the science has now reinforced 
what storytellers have learned, you know, from, from Aristotle onward about how to create story structure so that people want to keep turning the page, want to keep watching the TV show after the commercial or want to stay through the entire movie um, so that I, I continue to, to build tension, but I don't have to do it in a linear fashion. I need to, to modulate that tension. So, um, you know, that's not a deep insight maybe for storytellers, but it's, it really plays on the way our neuroanatomy responds uh, to story. So, um, so I guess the short, the, this is a long answer now, not a short answer, but you know, a good story is a good story is a good story. So uh, if you do a great story, uh, you create it, you film it, uh, it it's continued to be great. Uh, um, you're like rewatching movies. Do you, do you rewatch movies, Tim? Of course, like, I it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, especially so weird, with a two-year-old right? daughter, right? Like, I mean, like there's a few things that she doesn't, if she enjoys, want to see uh, again. She's like learning. She's fascinated by repeating something to be able to, you know, whether it's a song or, you know, a mo- or Frozen at the, at, at this right. week, apparently. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thing that we know the story or even sometimes like on, you know, YouTube will suggest in their, you know, infinite wisdom on the algorithms, they'll, you know, suggest, you know, monologues for movies. And they have figured out that I like, you know, certain monologues. And, you know, you see, uh, particularly for, for, for visual stories, you, know, you see these, these actors. One of my favorite movies is um, A Few Good Men uh, with, with Tom Cruise and uh, Jack Nicholson. And the, the, the big uh, monologue at the end that Nicholson's character gives is so powerful. And I've used, we've used that many times in studies. And you know, to, to have seen that probably 50 times and see his subtle you know, twitch of the mouth to see the, the, the eyes narrowing, you know, the, the subtle shift in the shoulders uh, that is extraordinary acting that brings to life that emotional sense in which this uh, very powerful man uh, is flexing his muscle in every possible way. And it's, it's uh, you know, uh, what's the saying? Um, you know, uh, you know it's, it's hubris. So he's setting himself up for this fall. And, you know, you know it's coming, but it's so well done that you want to read it or watch it over and over. That is also really weird to me, but it's that I, I want that oxytocin dopamine hit that, oh, this is good. This is this is mm. as you know, pretty much as good as that it, it ever gets from a storytelling perspective. I don't need to watch the whole movie, I just love that monologue. I think that's fantastic. And uh, so it, it's this hit of dopamine gives us the attention, and then the oxytocin is what makes us it is what makes us empathize and um, become invested in the fate of the characters. Is, am I getting mm-hmm. that right? Exactly right, beautiful. And, and also we, we, we begin to embody that. Uh, so there's part of that, sorry, we're on a rant now, but you know, we're a part of that, that monologue is, you know, the, the character says, you know, I may seem ugly to you because I carry weapon and defend our country. And I'm sure I am ugly, but you need me on my, that wall. You want me on that wall. And sometimes I feel like that in my own life. Like sometimes I have to do things that are not pretty. I got I to gotta take care of the animals or I got to do something in the yard. And, and it's not nice. And, it, and you know, I've got to protect my family or whatever. And, but I need to do that. I, I need to have the inner strength to, you know, kill the rat in my yard or the, whatever that, that thing is that is very distasteful. Um, but you have to step up and do things that are um, uh, sometimes ugly, and other people may not understand that 
you know, how, how could you do this? Well, I can't have a rat's nest living in my yard. It's not healthy for my family. It's not safe for my animals. It's not safe for my kids. So I have to do something about that or I got to call somebody something about that. So I feel like, you know, that, that somehow, you know, internally pumps me up that, uh, you know, I may have to do ugly things in my life, but those things have to be done. And, you know, it's, it's easy for us to sit back and critique others that we disagree with and what they're doing, but we don't live in their shoes. We don't know why they're doing what they're doing. And so I think, again, it builds a sort of empathy that you can be a horrible person. And I think that character was, was a very flawed person, but he truly believed what he was doing was noble and important. And, and somehow that, that got away from him. Well, that's a story we all can relate to, right? That we, 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 most of us, most of the time are doing things that we believe are noble and important and are good for us, good for the world, good for the people around us. But others may view that as ugly. I think that's a wonderful summary. And, and I'm so glad that you've picked something specific um, because it makes it so, uh, so, so wonderfully um, clear and articulate. And I, I think you've gone into fantastic uh, articulation of why it's compelling when we hear, I mean, quote unquote villains uh, monologue or explain their worldview. I think there's something, it is that trans, it's transporting to go into somebody else's head. And of course, as you say, they're often expressing something that within some aspect of ourselves that within normal polite society is somehow taboo or perhaps we feel ashamed of or perhaps we're not so good at expressing I you know I'm going to confess my, my geek side here but I in the last few years since my first book was published have got into doing a bit of um Dungeons and Dragons doing a bit of role playing right and so occasionally you know you play a character who's not like you or maybe even a villain a bit evil and it's funny that after a while you know you start doing you play a goblin or something and then you kind of think these guys, they're treated badly by everyone. Every they're they're shunned from polite society. They're chased with horses and dogs, and they can't get employment anywhere. I kind of get where they're coming from, and I've sometimes felt a bit, you know, a bit a, a bit kind of like a lower status character who's not let into the posh parties and stuff. I quite like these guys, so I think there's something that it allows us to engage fully. And now I'm going on a ramp, but with this, with the fullness of ourselves as a human being, because we create these social identities. And I think these characters, when we really identify with them, like in this three minute monologue, when you're in, you're invited to fully experience his emotions as your own vicariously, we actually get permission to engage another aspect of our humanity. And I think that is incredibly satisfying. Hi, it's uh, me back in the studio. Um, no, it's well, it's an office. It's not a studio. Um, but just that's the end of the conversation. Well, it wasn't the end of the conversation. We kept going. <laughs> that's kind of the tragedy of the whole thing. Um, but I just thought I'd step into just a, a sort of badly paraphrase what uh, Paul said in his final summing up because it was it was really really interesting, and I think you'd want to know. So I asked him a bit about whether he had sort of any advice for writers you know if he were put in front of a um 
if you were put in front of a creative writing class for whatever reason what advice he would give them if he had that opportunity and he talked about the work he's done um you know like when a movie comes out and they do test screenings where they get an audience watches it and then that audience are asked to fill in questionnaires did you like it what do you think of this bit this bit did you understand the ending blah 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 blah. would you recommend it to someone else and people fill that in and then they look at it and if there are sort of big problems or discrepancies they might do a re-edit they might even reshoot something if if something's testing really badly um and sometimes people can be a bit cynical about those things and, and see there's something slightly clinical about testing stuff with audiences but of course as writers we are we have the luxury of going to a workshop with something we've tapped out on the computer that day and if people read that in printout that's more or less the format that you would read it in a final book because it's text as a screenplay writer right you don't you don't get that luxury because it's got to be approved and then edited and then it's shot and then it's put and then it's shown to people and there's so many different stages and then you've invested hundreds of millions of dollars potentially so the idea that you wouldn't have a few beta readers right you wouldn't ask does it work to people who don't have huge amounts of money invest in the film and find out their thoughts and try to make it so it's something that communicates to them best it's, it seems to me silly to be snobby about that it seems like a really sensible thing um although although of course sometimes frustrating to the writer who feels their unique vision has been uh somehow changed but in any case what was interesting is that he was saying well people may write down oh, i like this bit oh, i don't think it should have had this ending whatever but they don't always have perfect insight right human beings don't always know quite what they like and they might be responding to emotional things that don't actually represent how invested they were in the film. So he has, and his you know team, have been asked by uh, sort of movie studios to study people's like neurophysical responses to movies and see what how people are responding to them emotionally, how their brains are responding, and instead of getting them to fill in a, a questionnaire use that as the data to decide how that well the film's working so he was talking about doing it for the um movie about the dog marley and me and people in questionnaires said they didn't like that the dog dies at the end in the edits that they'd seen but the neurological data showed quite a different story in that i mean they didn't like it so they're in their questionnaire saying oh, you should change the ending it's too sad but it was releasing oxytocin huge amounts of oxytocin and they were engaged and they cared about it and so and the movie went on to do very well and so it's this idea that you readers don't always know what's best for them you know the viewers don't always know what's best for them or can't always articulate it 
and that sounds hugely patrician, right? I wouldn't apply that to, you know, like voters or democracy, although you might. That's okay. I know it sounds like slightly evil overlord. <laughs> I sound like Doctor Doom. <laughs> the people are fools. They have the rights I choose to give them, and that is for their own good. I don't mean it like that. I just mean that if we've empathised with characters very deeply, we may not unreasonably not want to see them dead um, because they feel like real people. But that doesn't mean that's not the right thing for the story. And now, here's the thing, right? You may be saying, well, that's all very well and good, Tim, but um, you know, I don't actually have uh, sort of two dozen syringes uh, and a centrifuge and dry ice and a testing lab where I can draw blood samples before and after my workshop group read my 5,000 word extract uh, and then take it back to a lab to see if there are raised levels of oxytocin in their bloodstream. Fair enough, right? I understand you can't do this, but what it's telling us and what Paul was saying is that actually when you look at those audiences, the response the oxytocin response and the various you know the, that kind of rising and falling action that he was talking about um the freitag pyramid and had their ability to sort of be engaged with it is not constant across the entire audience as you would imagine right we're not all responding to the same movie in exactly the same way certain people respond more than others and, and now here's the kicker approximately 20% of the population are what he terms neurological super responders. So they get super engaged in movies. They get super engaged in books. They Certain triggers, they're going to go, wow, oh my gosh, this is amazing. There'll be certain people who, when they hit something that they really like, will pump out loads of oxytocin and will really get involved and these are the people and it might not be the you know they're not always going to be constant uh, there'll be different you know fan bases for different things but these are the people who go and then spread the word about movies and the people who write fan fiction who go to cons and cosplay as the characters who do fan art who go to readings who you know go and write stories themselves you know to a certain extent a lot of writers may well be these neurological super responders who are so taken in by stories. Taken in makes it sound like I'm saying you're conned, but I mean that in the best possible way. Not pejorative at all, who were transported by stories. Approximately 20% are these neurological super responders. And they, if a movie or a story is going to really be successful, they are the people you want to please. And listen, here's the thing. A lot of writers, it, it sort of might not sound like, well, what, what, what does that mean to me? Well, a lot of writers, I think, unconsciously or otherwise, end up trying to sort of tailor their cloth to fit a perceived mainstream, right? And me and Kirsty Logan talked about this on the episode she came on, but this idea that you go, you kind of like sand off the difficult edges of your story, the weirdness, the strangeness, the whatever you perceive to be outside what the mainstream literary culture wants uh, to try and make it palatable to the widest audience possible 
and and you may well succeed in that by the way he's not saying that people who don't have that increased response don't enjoy films that that'd be absurd but do you want your work to be quite liked by most people or do you want it to be loved by one in five of the people who see it you know people who get passionate about it and so what he was saying is that instead of trying to get a mild response off a broad swathe of people the most effective thing in terms of marketing but also i think in terms of art or just making anything that connects is to write something that is truly yours that has a chance of connecting and hooking up with that 20 percent of your audience who are neurological super responders for whom that's going to be the juice you know that's going to be the answer make the thing uniquely yours and go for targeting those you know right for it's more it's more important for you to be writing for the person who says i love this and to be adapting to them than it is to go for your friends who don't really like the kind of thing you're writing but can go oh yeah it's all right blah blah blah, blah. and i think that is so true same thing comes when like picking an agent right you don't want to try and win over an agent who is like oh i'm very busy i mean it's not really my kind of thing but i can see with these kind of changes i might be able to consider uh you know representing you you want someone who's like oh my god i love this it does and it kind of doesn't matter if other people don't really get it what you're doing because those people are going to do so much heavy lifting uh, so it's about you know writing something that engages people's attention and then moves them and through that you're going to get a you know you're going to get these kind of rabid fans right and I think when we were talking, we hit upon something that I feel is rather profound, which is, you know, we were talking about like what's it, what's the function of tragedy? What is the function of of of, of a story that ends in kind of sadness? You know, given you know what we've been just discussing. What's the function of a story that ends with like the character dying, with things going wrong? Why why would we want that sociologically? What's the human need? What what is it fulfilling? And you know, Paul had been talking about this kind of oxytocin spike, and then that persists, and then afterwards we are more generous, we are more kind, we're more likely to give money to charity. And it strikes me that when a story arc ends in tragedy and we've empathized with the characters and we see that tragedy the 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 moral is not always avoid the behaviors that these characters have done the moral can also the, the effect can also be if you experience a tra tragedy a story with a downer ending the story doesn't end where it ends on the page right you carry that physiological a neurological response away from the story you've all been there at the end of a movie right and you're sitting there in the darkness whereas the credits roll just trying to decompress and catch your breath and you walk out into the world 
of light and you forgot what time of day it was going to be and you're kind of briefly transformed and things look different i think if you what if you engage with a tragedy when we do that it forces us to we're not forced but it compels us to finish the story in real life to create a good ending in real life like scrooge waking on christmas day and crying out i haven't missed it people can suddenly realize that we still have time and to square that discomfort that we feel that sadness to do something with that increased connection that we feel to our fellow human beings thanks to being flooded with oxytocin we might act briefly with more kindness with more compassion with more social awareness with more of a sense of responsibility and that to me was a very profound realization from talking to Paul and I will be forever grateful to him for helping me rediscover stories so look I'm going to put links to his work including his books in the show notes and on my website timclairpoet.co.uk if you've enjoyed hearing from him I just encourage you to go and seek his stuff out support him by buying his books uh, and oh yeah and you can follow him on twitter Paul J Zach let him know if you enjoyed today's uh episode i think it's um I, I'm, I'm sorry that the ending bit uh came off it's it's uh these things happen and i'll forgive myself but i will also um do my, my best to put measures in place to make sure it doesn't happen again or happens as infrequently as possible right well hopefully that's it um, I did actually record <laughs> both the intro and this outro um, before last night and uh, it was only when I lo- went to edit them that I realised the microphone wasn't plugged in. So this episode has been slightly cursed. I really, really hope that it's been worth it for you and that you've got something out of this. I'm just so committed to giving you new stuff. Uh, that makes you see your own practice in a new light okay have a lovely week we're getting to the end of the season of death of a thousand cuts now i'm going to start season three and i'm going to take a little break over the festive period because people don't really listen to podcasts over christmas i hope your writing goes well remember to keep plugging away at it just 10 minutes now and then you'll be all right okay bye-bye